From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. On our usual news show, we discuss the best preceding week's fintech news. Today's episode, though, is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be looking at some of the big stories that happened at the time of the financial crisis, specifically between September and December 2008. So with that in mind, this week we bring you Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy, Madhav jailed for 50 billion fraud, and note to self, don't slag off your bank in your online banking password. All this and much, much more on today's new show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now we've made a documentary. I mean, we've been going on about it for weeks, so you definitely, definitely have. It's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, and it's now available for you to watch all for free over at 11years.film. We're super proud of it. And if you haven't yet seen it, stop this podcast and go watch it right now. We spoke to over 20 experts, including CEOs of top London fintechs, traditional banks, the FCA, the Bank of England, and many, 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 many more to discuss what happened around the financial crisis. Check it out now at 11years.film. As always, we're not alone today. I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, Jason Bates. Very well, thank you. How are you? Very good. And Mr. Simon Taylor, how's it going? Very well, thank you. How's your week been? Is it like your week in 2008 or is it like the week now? <laughs> I can only do now. I have no idea what I was doing. <laughs> it's just a blur. Yeah, no, I was probably, I was still jobless, so I was probably playing video games. This week has been a lot more intense. <laughs> a lot more did to... you have long hair in 2008? I did have long No, actually, I cut it in January 2008. Um, mm-hmm. So it gone from long. It was long in 2007. There are so, photos. So potentially you caused the crisis by cutting your hair. Like I mean, some sort of like Samson Sam- vibe. Financial <laughs> Samson. That's what I was going for. Wow, who knew? Indeed. Well, grow it out again. See what happens. Right? Well, let's give it a whirl. You might be able to uh, avoid the downturn next year. Yeah, well, so. there's things happening in the... Uh, the markets, right? Indeed. All right. And joining us, we have some awesome guests as always. Caroline Plum, CEO of Fluidly. How's Hello. it going? Yeah, very well. Thank you. How are you? Very, very good. Busy, busy week. But I mean, 2008, when was Fluidly founded? Uh, yeah, Fluidly, 2016. So, uh, you know, okay. before Fluidly. Just a twinkle in the eye at that was, point. So yes. where, where were you in 08? So I was running my first business, actually. Uh, so this is called Fresh Minds, uh, which has been trading almost 18, 19 years now. So, yes, I remember it very well, 2008. Very good. And from one entrepreneur to another, Mr. Nick Ogden. How's it going? I mate, very well, thank you. Where were you in 2008? Um, Cambridge. Is that a confession? But anyway, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you with? What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. We, we had this, this daft company still in existence called Cashflows, and we were just waiting for all of this stuff to appear from the European Union in relation to PSD1 and all of that good stuff and, you know, generally bumbling around and watching and trying to... We had a little lottery going with a guy called Michael Lafferty to guess which next bank would fail. Some <laughs> interesting times. Doesn't PSD1 seem so retro now? It does. <laughs> it's almost like a you know, Ford Escort, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's like Deadpool for banks. Oh. Ooh. It is. Yeah. Like it. Good, good reference. Wow. All right. Let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story over on Finextra. This is Lehman Brothers Files for Bankruptcy. So the Lehman Brothers holding filed for bankruptcy protection as it emerged that Japanese banks were the US group's top unsecured lenders. And authorities in Tokyo have ordered Lehman's Japanese subsidiary to retain assets in the country. So the collapse will cause thousands of job losses among the investment bank's 25,000 strong staff. The London FSA, as it was at the time, said in a statement, Lehman Brothers is a US institution regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So the FSA is working closely with US authorities to ensure an orderly wind down of its principal UK trading subsidiary. Everything's going to be fine. Nothing to see here. It does sound a little (laughs) bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, 
this came out of sort of nowhere, I guess, at the time. Did you see Lehman's coming, Nick? <sighs> I don't know. I think there was a lot going on. It started, kicked off with the Icelandic stuff and nobody saw that coming. I mean, why would a small island with 300,000 people trigger the global financial crisis mm. on but its it, own? And but it, it was the first thing to go pop, wasn't it? It, it wasn't. Was. There was an undercurrent here that it some was. people had seen, you know, kind of in the securities markets and uh, the liquidity crunch that was kind of happening behind the scenes with the banks. It was these things were the almost the kind of the, the tip of the iceberg of things that were happening beneath the surface for quite some time. The day after the Icelandic crash, though, you remember that was the day that RBS nearly ran out of money and the ATMs nearly got turned off. And so, and there weren't any hints going on. There was a problem with liquidity, really, were there? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, not publicly, and definitely not what they were saying. But I think, like you say, it was this all sounds retrospectively like you know, keep calm and carry on, doesn't it? I do remember going to a house party. In fact, someone told a story on stage at the 11 Years premiere about uh, going to a party and and being warned. Oh, no, it was in the film, wasn't it? Uh, um, Being told to take money out of Mm. the account and put it into gold. Have have you not seen the film, Jason? I have. have. (laughs) But I was at a party with uh, some stockbrokers back then. It reminded me, 2007-ish, and uh, they were all like, oh, this, we're screwed. This, this thing's all going to go collapse. It's like, and I just look at them like, come on. And they're like, no, no, this is really stuff's really happening. You just wouldn't believe. And I am fascinated as to how many people behind the scenes like mm. really could see it coming away off. Mm. You know, people working day-to-day trading or whatever in the industry mm. who were at the time, they were screwing their money out and moving it into, you know, into safety. Okay. Meanwhile, the rest of the world's going to be impacted by this. Thing. Yeah. I mean, money markets in that way, as soon as somebody spooked and as some, soon as somebody sees anybody making any type of movement, then, you know, how much of this was caused by people necessarily doing that and, mm. and how much of it could have been avoided if there was more of a, a proactive kind of fixing of the problem, essentially. Mm. But this sort of, <clears throat> I guess, originated, you say about Iceland, but Lehman's was the US kind of boil bursting, essentially, wasn't it? I mean, where do you think was most impacted on that? I think most people... You know, I, I was not in the financial service industry at all at the time. And I think we were just all quite happy in the little bubble. House prices were going up. Yep. People have been saying for ages that they were going to come down. It was going to be some sort of bubble. But I don't think anyone really believed it. Mm-hmm. We were just all there with our little Blackberry, you know, oh, Blackberry and pearls, <laughs> texting away, oh, happy getting on. Pearl, I know. Yeah. I don't think we saw that coming at all. And we could all get a mortgage for 125% yeah. of our earnings or whatever it was and just fill a form in. We didn't have to do any KYC. We could just post it to this great, great institution somewhere up north. <laughs> and they'd send money. It was remarkable. It did seem quite weird. I remember having yeah. one of those mortgages that sort of, yeah, some, you know, 95% or yeah, something. Some, yeah, and it's, you and, know. And, you know, but it was just like free money. Why wouldn't you take it? I mean, we're sort of back to some of that now, aren't we, a little bit? You know, there's 100 plus percent mortgages happening. There's negative interest, uh, positive interest rates, right? No, negative, negative interest, interest rates. Interest so people are actually paying you now to mm. have mortgages, which yep. is weird. So, I mean... We, Talk about is, free money. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. is this cycle repeating? Have we learned nothing? <laughs> but also has it moved? Because the mortgage-backed securities market, there are now there's the Basel III regulations around you know, uh, capitalizing some of the bank's balance sheets, but the corporate debt market is what people are really worried about, Nick. Yeah, you're right. I think we are heading again to some more fun and games, is perhaps the politest way of saying it. The ironic thing is that it all comes back to this thing called liquidity, right, which is invisible. 
all of us sitting around this table know how much money we've got in our pockets, but none of us know what the other person's get. We could play a game of bluff, especially with you. But <laughs> <laughs> Pointing at Jason. There, <laughs> I know how I got into this. I, I don't want to play, who's, play a game of bluff with Nick. Say, <laughs> I'm not sure if he's implying you're wealthy or, or just trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> or not trustworthy. He's the only person with lunch here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, I think we all know how Lehman Brothers kind of turned out, really. Uh, it was probably the first domino, I guess that kicked all this stuff off but uh, moving on there is another fun story so over on the New York Times we have Bush wants bailout for banks so the Bush administration has formally proposed a vast bailout of the financial institutions in the United States requesting the Treasury Department to buy up 700 billion in distressed mortgage related assets from private firms it would raise the national debt ceiling to 11.3 trillion which Seems like not a lot now, I guess. Uh, And it would place no restrictions on the administration, granting the Treasury Secretary unprecedented power to buy and resell mortgage debt. Wow. I mean, I kind of miss Bush, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Given how everything's turned out, you know? We were saying before we started recording the podcast, like, would you go back to 2008? I mean, yeah, you've got like a catastrophic financial crisis to kind of deal with and maybe changing your career forever. But you've got to... It's like not that bad when you when you kind of put it com- compared, compared to, to today. Yeah, yeah, Golden Brown, Bush, as yeah. opposed Alpha to Darling with his eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean they were a thing. Yeah. Like they talk about regulation via eyebrows. Yeah. Back yeah. when politics was boring. Yeah, it's like you know, and you people would say blah 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 blah, and other people would say blah blah blah. Now. Goodness, like what's happened? Political mm-hmm. risk in the Western world. Do you know Who would have thought that would have been a thing? What's really happened is spitting images stopped. And <laughs> <laughs> became real life. Well, yeah, satire is, satire yeah, the is orange dead. The orange men arrived. <laughs> um, but Nick, do you think the, that huge injection of capital was the right thing to do? Was there any choice? I, I think that sometimes uh, the regulatory response to these things is just throw more money at it, whether it's good or bad. Mm, and I think that one, you know, if you look at the way that regulation applies now, it's you know, what can we do? Well, let's get more capital. Let's bump more capital against up against it. And one of the interesting things, you know, I guess, sort of jumping ahead but looking back to something that was quite similar is that, you know, Facebook's Libra project could have basically pulled all the liquidity out from all the banks and reduced lending. So there are very close similarities, you know, 10, 11 years on to where we were back in 2008. Mm. I mean, was this sort of good money after bad, though? I mean, was there any saving of the system at this stage or did it need a would 700 billion really fix this in the way because like it did not spoiler alert so uh, Mm. but um, I mean like could anything at this stage have fixed it or do you think it was kind of a you know DOA I I just think they were kind of from a consumer perspective, though, first of all, you've seen the banks go down, and you're like, "Well, that's not great," but at least some bankers have lost their jobs. And then <laughs> some positives, yeah, and then you've got seven hundred hey, billion. I was a banker in <laughs> No, but I think people are like it's not a group that people generally have a lot of affection for, no. and so at least you feel like there's some justice. And then suddenly, all this money is getting poured into the system. I think people are kind of outraged. The bankers are rich again. Woo. Well, it just feels a bit, you know, off, doesn't it? I mean, you, there's no alternative, mm. and you know, clearly they had to do something. You messed but, up, so here's a lot of money exactly yeah. i think it's you know it's a bitter pill i think and it still has been right yeah somebody must be looking for the pot of money with all the lost money in it <laughs> <laughs> there's a really big sofa somewhere yeah, there must be, somebody's got some somewhere I, I mean i actually said this at the premiere the other night but i was so i was at lloyd's banking group at the time and it for at least two years any taxi driver who asked i told i worked in it 
So it was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. didn't say I was a banker for two years just because it was easier. You're like, and there was, to your point, there was actually yeah. that much sort of hatred yes. towards anybody within the financial service. And, and actually people didn't really understand that. It wasn't like like some young dude doing stuff in digital. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, frontline, uh, like dodgy mortgage stuff that was happening over the US that kind of caused a lot of mm. these things. So I don't want to play that little tiny little violin for everybody who works in banks who gets beaten up with being a banker. But really, like, not all bankers are created equal, shall we say. Well, especially for branch staff who probably took this really yeah. uh, at the front yeah. line. Yeah, you know, they, they were the ones bearing the brunt of a lot of this stuff. When the world runs on the banks, runs on the ATMs, and they were the ones that had the least to do with causing any of this. Yeah. So you, you really feel for them. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, very, that's very, very true. Mm. Um, I think that the you know the, the, in the CEOs in the boardrooms, they forgot who their customers were. They forgot mm. that it was, yeah. you know, mum and pops in the street. And it was just a large balance sheet with a large amount of money and, hey, what can go wrong? And how much did they understand the, the liquidity game that started to do being played after the invention of the collateralized debt obligation? Like until uh, <laughs> until until like the big short came along and really explained what that was. Did everybody that worked in the bank really get those complex not. contracts no. and, yeah, and right. where the liquidity really was? And then, you know, this magic of rehypothecation. So you're lending out the same liquidity and collateralizing the same thing two or three and four times. The same dollar suddenly, instead of it working really hard, is working really, really hard. Yeah. And and suddenly, like, yeah, I mean, that is banking to a degree. Um, you know, it's kind of, but but it does does lead to that big change that happened, that ring fencing. You know, great, you've got the casino banking. Let's make uh, complex derivatives and and crazy ways of making more money and repackaging risk in ever more esoteric forms, away from grandma's pension yeah. you know jason's salary is like let's keep those those kid things safe. as long as those two things are fine then it's fine <laughs> but it does lead to an interesting question as to whether we're heading more towards narrow banking towards banking where really you know that capital is kept a lot more safe mm-hmm. especially yeah. with um you know bank of england coin you know if the bank mm-hmm. of england suddenly decides that actually we're going to have super safe accounts that anyone can put their money in and they're safe no interest but it's it's basically always there how many people get into that? And what effect does that have on on lending and growth in the economy? Who steps in and how does that all work? Because it's doable now, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's doable, but it requires such a fundamental reset of the <clears throat> expectations from a shareholder value perspective of what banks do, right? Okay. Because, I mean, if you – I think I've said this to you guys before, but having sat in Lloyd's and seen the share price go from like £7 to like 28p – that like that value for those people who own those things is just never going to come back, is it? Mm. And the pressure, I think, when you're a you know CEOs of banks are there first and foremost, Nick. Like you say, not to serve the customer; they're yeah. there to serve the shareholder. And that weirdness around the pressure of those things just means that they never really make decent decisions. You know, well, at Clearbank, we hold all of our clients' funds hold. We don't leverage it, and so you know, we're the only bank in the UK that can pay all of their customers back on demand. Full reserve banking at Clearbank. Yeah, full. It is. No, it is. It's unique. And the reason for that is going back to my favorite work of liquidity is our customers, customers want to be able to spend their own money. Now, we might hold it on behalf of building societies and credit institutions and other banks. The reality is they're holding it on behalf of their customers. I find it very frustrating when I go to make a payment from my bank of my money to be told, you've hit your daily limit. Well, hang on. I didn't know I had agreed with you to set myself a daily limit of the money that I could spend of my own money. It's like um, your parents setting you an allowance. It is. It's, it's like pocket money. But, I mean, these things are real challenges. 
But I don't think it's just the shareholder expectations that can't need to be set. It's just the customer expectations, to your point, in that mm-hmm. banking is really complicated. The average person does not really understand what goes on within the bank. And it's sort of, you know, what do the Romans ever do for us? I mean, what do the, you know, the banks do? How do you explain but, that? But I'd people? almost say, look, you, know, you can't have it both ways. You can't get mortgages from a bank and be paid interest on your savings. No, of course not. While at the same time having free retail banking, like it has to be paid some way. And net interest margin and maturity transformation, all those classic things have always been at the heart of what a bank does, which a a full reserve bank wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have access to. So you have to make money in a different way and provide value in a different way, I guess. I don't think people really, you know, and that's back to this bailout, you know, $2,000 for every man, woman and child, right, in the US. How do you kind of articulate, you are getting $2,000 worth of value day in, day out from the bank and it's not, it's not really, you know, it's there, but it's not really clear. Yeah, it's not materially evidentable to people, is it? So they just don't see it as a benefit to them at all. So it is, it is a strange one. I think what we're talking about is like fundamentally, I don't think, People really understand how banking works. No. Yeah. I, I, mean, look, I get Google Maps for free, I get Facebook, and I get banking. They're all free, and why not? And fractional <laughs> reserve banking is a crazy idea that they, they don't hold your money in like a in a sort of a vault somewhere. It's held and then lent out many times. They invent money and make it up. And actually yeah. that creates risk and they're in the job of risk management. But that's an important role in society that they're playing in creating liquidity mm. and capital for yeah. investment. And the Bank of England actually looked at, well, are we seeing a trend towards narrow banking? Nerd alert. Uh, in Bank of England working paper 605, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh which, which is... Phenomenal, because they were the first Every to customers lo- read that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a classic into, should we do a, a Bank of England token? And their, their, uh, their thesis was, well, yes, you could do it maybe at the top end of the market between banks, but it probably makes no sense for the consumer because you'd pull liquidity out of the market. But it's interesting, the People's Bank of China and others are very seriously considering moving that way here and now today. So, well, NS and I give you something close. I mean, essentially, it's government debt yeah. it's into a bond it's pretty much i forget what the the size of the account is but you know 2 million into nsni is, is much safer than your 85000 pound you know fscs protection so it's not a big step to say well the nsni you know current account which essentially just goes into the government's coffers and they you know promise to pay you in the currency they print would be a pretty safe uh, bet. That's a really good point. But but isn't that, I mean, to your point a second ago around, I mean, I get Facebook for free, I get Google Maps for free. Well, you don't. You're paying for that in a way you don't understand. Uh, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're uh, talking Democracy. down to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't, I didn't mean you specifically. You very white-faced, Jason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Google, sit there. <laughs> sit down, Jason. It explains to me. Exactly, yeah. You're paying for it. Exactly. <laughs> if, if you can't point to the product, you are the product. Yeah, so. I mean... <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. I meant what you said, just less <laughs> condescending. But um, but in banking, people don't get that they are the product to a certain degree. Because to your point, there is no free retail banking. You're being penalized by using the product, which is sort of weird, isn't it? Do you know I mean, yeah. if, if every like four miles Google charged you for the mapping service, then you'd probably start stopping using it, wouldn't you? You know, but. Isn't that then back to what we're talking about, which is just, there's just actually just a lack of transparency of almost obfuscation of terms to make things actually – we talked about um, bear trap sort of business models in the past and actually you know, moving money around and never really understanding where all that money actually is so you can't actually pay out when you need to pay out. Yeah. Like that is – 
madness if you try and explain it to like my mum. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. that sounds like you're a crook. You yeah. know, being in that situation, I just think is is part of the problem. Because banks like Gringotts, right? There's like this vault, and you give them <laughs> money, and they put it in the vault. So yeah. That's how it works. Was that a Harry Potter? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we've we... had Life of Brian, Harry Potter. <laughs> We're like on a roll here today. Yeah, but we are safer, or in the UK, far safer than say for America, for example. Because on our bank notes, it says, "I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of X, Y, and Z." Mm-hmm. Where you've just come back from, David, and America, it just says on their banknotes, in God we trust. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just like, good luck, everybody. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the next story then. So this is over on the FT. So this is the UK nationalizes Bradford and Bingley to sell them on to Santander. So the government on Monday confirmed it was nationalizing Bradford and Bingley after hammering out a deal with Spanish bank Santander, which will buy Bradford and Bingley's 21 billion mortgage deposit book and branch network for about 600 million. That triggered the financial services compensation scheme, which steps in to pay compensation to people who lose money as a result of financial services groups failing. The FSCS, which is funded by the financial services industry, is paying out about 14 billion to enable retail deposits held in BNB and covered by the scheme to be transferred to Santander. Wow. So Alistair Darling quote here, I think, was pretty pretty good fun. So my priority was to protect savers. I can't even remember what his voice was really anymore. He seems very monotone, yeah. Blah, 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 I told you. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) So my priority was to protect savers and depositors, but also ensure we got a good deal for the taxpayer. We had to stabilize the situation in order to protect the banking system as a whole. I guess that didn't work, though, did it? So it's interesting. I mean, at this point, Santander were pirates of the high seas, weren't they? They were sort of (laughs) buying all sorts of stuff and sort of integrating it into their organization. I'm never really sure if the B&B one actually worked. What do you think? I don't know, but weren't Santander meant to be the white knight for RBS and then went over the other hill? I think they were for for Williams and Glynn, Yeah. 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 So they've got form on no, this No, this one. is going back to 2008. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't know um, um, Fred Goodwin, that, you know, famous film star, and uh, Neil <laughs> Bottam, they were very, very close in relation to the activities between Santander and oh, RBS. Did not know that. Yeah. I like, so so, I, I so knew- did they decide, to, as opposed to put their money into a bankrupt RBS, apply their money elsewhere and buy assets? Today, we're seeing a bunch of people selling off mortgage books again, right? We've just seen Sainsbury's, Tesco. I think there's a third that I can't remember. Looking at producer Laura, she's giving me no help. I'm going to move on. Yeah, so is this, again, a sign of sort of history slightly repeating itself by people trying to get shot of mortgages? Quite possibly. There's definitely people selling their book. But this was, and Bradford and Bingley was largely savings on mortgages, right? That's yeah. what the, the, they were known for. There's definitely a rhyme there. There's similarities. But, but you've seen this in the mortgage market then and now, that it starts with the really micro lenders. There were tiny ones that you hadn't heard of that were selling their book or, or going bust. That was happening here six months ago. Now you're seeing these mid-market ones that suddenly are selling out and they can't make the net interest margin work for them. That's happening, creeping further and further up the market. And it does seem like um, sort of a a harder market to be in at the moment, that sort of uh, building society space. But if you look at those building societies that went bang during the crisis, they were the ones that jumped from being mutuals to PLC. They went after and said, look, you know, the big banks in the country are public companies. We're not. We're mutuals. We're bound by our shareholders. Mm. And frankly, we can do better. And didn't. 
They caught mm. the bug. Mm. But then it was the, the age of the carpetbagger. It was yes. the it was the put a thousand pounds into all the building societies just in case you can uh, they can converse and suddenly you get your big payoff. That's right. And and now let's have a vote across the mutual. Who would like to change? Yes, <laughs> yes, we'd like to change. Yeah. Of course, nationwide uh, didn't mm. narrowly miss that that vote. Yep. And you know, it's still around today. I I um well, biggest, I do biggest building society in the world. Yeah. I feel sort of sad that we lost so many building societies mm. because it's such an amazing model, this sort of mutual model of people putting their savings in and essentially crowdfunding people being able to buy property. Yeah, not, not all of them went broke. I mean, if you look at Nottingham Building Society, that's still growing and it's really bucking the trend because it's opening things called branches. <laughs> you heard of those? <laughs> no. But Bradford and Bingley had that lovely sort of little bowler hat, didn't it? It was a very yeah. sort of quaint little brand. And I think it sort of Santander at the time, I think we hadn't really heard of much. You know, it only come to the UK market in 2004. It was still trading as Abbey. Mm-hmm. You know, who was this sort of... What was the Santander thing buying yeah. up building sites? Back, back in 2008, people were like, oh, foreigners coming in. I, yeah, I think now. it was quite unusual. You know, it was still quite a sort of, yeah. well, you know, we didn't really know the brand, never really heard of Santander. Mm. It literally, it wasn't rebranded as Santander until 2010. Mm. So, you know, this was really, it's was an unusual then, sort of business that come in and buying, mm. buying this. Um, buying this and was it, was it Abbey that they took before? Yes, yeah, and, and, and Alliance <clears throat> Leicester. Oh, wow, okay. I opened my first account at Alliance Leicester. I've Ooh. still got a, Passbook for uh, for it somewhere. I'm going, to, a, I'm going to bring it into Santander. I was going to say I've got a Bradford and Bingley one, one somewhere that had like thirty quid in it. Who knows what's happened? To <laughs> some sort of like eBay Save special it. now. Yeah, you should find that, Simon. You've probably got thousands of pounds in there. <laughs> Millionaires. Yeah. I didn't know it. All right. What else happened during this period of time then? So there was a few noticeable things. So there was this young rapscallion became mayor of London called Boris Johnson. I mean, he actually. During that period of time, he did a lot of good for fintech. I'm not going to lie. Like it, you kind of look at a lot of the things that he actually pushed forwards. There was a lot of the good things that he did. Do. Well, he was entertaining he was as a London yeah. mayor. He was, yeah. but he was. He was a laugh, wasn't he? The <laughs> London mayoral office did a lot of interesting things back then. <laughs> they did. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, did you come across him at all? No, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> no scandal here. <laughs> I, I don't know. You seem to be protesting. This <laughs> I want you to know you're in a safe space. Uh, yeah, denying yeah. too quickly. <laughs> um, we also had Spotify then launched. So back in 2008, Spotify actually came to the market, which is, I mean, a pretty big sign of the times, I guess. We talk a lot about Spotify and the whole sort of digitized to digital kind of services. So this was the, I guess, the first time we really saw legal and legitimized digital streaming of music, which um, really sort of heralded quite a dramatic change there. Next up, we had Jay-Z headlining Glastonbury, which I remember like it was yesterday, which is kind of weird. And also one who, for people who aren't Jay-Z fans, probably, the Adrian Collider was switched on for the first time. And lots of people thought that they'd be a black hole that would end us all, apparently. Mm. Really? Mm. Some people thought that, and <laughs> it made for great headlines. Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially, by turning it on, we discovered that we would be dying from a black hole. Yeah. But the black hole was a black, black hole was in Switzerland, so it didn't matter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knew the difference. <laughs> take, take them. All right. On that note, we'll be back after a quick break. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. 
They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. All right, let's get on with the second part of the show. Okay, so next story was over on CBS News. This is stocks take a record tumble down 777 points. That's quite terrifying. I'm glad it wasn't 666 on you. That would or, have been... Or, no Max involved in this scandal. <laughs> All right. So Wall Street watched Washington with shock as fear as the bailout package was announced. So the result of Wall Street was a historic 777-point nosedive. The Nasdaq plunged almost 10%. The financial crisis was felt worldwide with the British government having to seize Bradford and Bingley. Whoops, the sort of callback to our last story. Around 160 companies were in danger of defaulting over the next 12 months, as was pointed out by, and some pretty big ones in there as well. So United Airlines, GM, and a bunch of other organizations there as well. Trump Entertainment Resorts as well, which was quite entertaining. I'm not sure if that did go bust or not, but um, I think he probably turned out okay, didn't he? So meanwhile, the Federal Reserve pumped $630 billion into the global financial system on Monday, flooding banks with cash, trying to keep the crisis from worsening. So, I mean, people kind of remember this day pretty vividly, don't they, in terms of the such a dramatic nosedive? I think it's I don't think it's completely unprecedented territory, but it's pretty much there, right? Yeah, I think people who were involved in the stock market were, but I don't think way back then I owned any stock in anything. It was one of those weird things where I don't know, it's from my background or the people I hung out with. We just didn't own stock. So you'd you'd watch the news and you go, Oh great, loads of people have just lost money. But actually, there was a very large proportion of the population that while they didn't know how much this was going to affect them coming down the line, mm. looked, watched the news and saw the stock market dive and go, when? Should we go down the pub? <laughs> yeah, you don't connect this to austerity. You don't connect this to lower earnings. You don't connect it to harder to get mortgages. Yeah. You, th- none of those things are connected when it first happens. It's just like, oh, that's news. And now I will leave and go to the pub. Nope. <laughs> I, I think austerity was one of the words that people, it just wasn't normal everyday vernacular. Mm-hmm. And now is, you know, yeah. like it's yeah. the, the things that sort of came in. But uh, I mean, I, I'm similar, you know, stuff happened on TV and then you're like, oh, okay, how will this flow down essentially? And who's going to go bust yeah. you know it's yeah. kind of that was sort of the interesting part was it you know keep an eye on like which companies you know it was sort of a, it was sort of financial drama and we'd yeah. seen yeah. Re- recessions before where bearings bank had gone under and we'd seen recessions where a bank goes pop so it's like oh it's one of those right mm-hmm. I, I think think i vaguely saw something about nick leeson and a film back <laughs> in the day i was sort of mm-hmm. vaguely aware of these other things that happen in a recession we're going into a recession oh okay it this is missed the personal narrative didn't it didn't really have like a villain yeah. in the same way so yeah, it needed a Nick Leeson. It really mm. needed one. It had several of those later on, but uh, yeah, yeah, it didn't have that moment. I think that the whole the whole of that period was just fascinating in relation to what was going on and what was not being said. You know, the fact of the matter is now is not dissimilar to then in relation to, mm. you know, the last three years we've had our currency collapse and all the rest of it. That's affected ratios mm. all over the place, made getting mortgages harder and whatever. And it's, you know, what comes around goes around. Mm. And I, know, I wonder if it has made people more aware of some of the context, though. I mean, I, I kind of put it on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. It was like, hey, wait, like businesses are going bust and like mortgages are like it's like do you set like pattern recognition to a certain degree because i guess in the in the 
greatest sense, money markets are so long-winded in terms of the cycles that most people don't see too many of them to then start recognizing the patterns. It's why we have smart people to do those things to a certain degree, right? But maybe they're, no, they're normally about every ten or eleven years. But people kind of ostrich maybe. on them, don't they? Even <laughs> yeah. if you see it coming, you know, and yeah. it, you know clearly where we are. Is, sort of... is 12 years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Strap yourself in, kids. Yeah. You said go to the pub. That was a good idea. Yeah. Really. <laughs> but it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, it's that mythical consumer confidence thing. If people really did understand what was going on yeah. and really watched things, you'd have a lot more volatility. You don't actually, you don't want to scare the sheep. You know, you want everyone just going along, yeah. buying their stuff, keeping the economy going. Mm. Don't be afraid. Don't who was it who said, um, you know, the time to be afraid is when they go on TV and say, uh, you know, afraid, everything's afraid, fine, yeah. keep going. It's like, that's the time to, to really stop coming. worrying. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember, um, so I worked, I started working for Tesis in um, mid-2009. This is one of the payments processes. So th- this was sort of just as the, they were coming out of the financial crisis and there was, I remember walking into buildings of different banks back then and seeing the keep calm and carry on posters everywhere and sort of evoking that spirit of the uh, of World War II and, and kind of the, the blitz and everything. There was a bit of that as well going on inside the banking system that I think a lot of people didn't see. I don't know if you saw similar things in, in your Lloyd's days, David. There was lots of people trying to keep calm. <laughs> <laughs> and not so many carrying yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, there was a lot who weren't unable to keep calm, definitely. But um, it's like any sort of complete crash of that sense. I, I mean, what was being asked of people, I think, particularly at Lloyd's and, and at RBS, was to completely take yourself out of the equation. There was thousands of people who would just fundamentally lost the ability to actually retire anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And we were expecting them to try and carry on with their lives as if that wasn't happening to provide services to other people. I honestly think that the amount of people who were able to do that in the face of total loss of, of savings is just amazing. You know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were in share save schemes and saw you know, sort of 10 to 15 years of work that was going to be this little nest egg just dropped by mm. 10x, right? Yep. It was just... Yeah, there was. I mean, there was a lot of people at the time I remember saying, retirement is gone. The thing I have to do now is stay here and get VR. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, actually, if you play that forward 11 years... That's voluntary redundancy for people. Not, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, not virtual reality. reality. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stay yeah. here now and get VR. I've yeah. been waiting a while. Exactly, yeah. I'm just going to sit here and get my Oculus on. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. VR retirement. Exactly. You can have the beach of your dreams. Um, but no, praying for vo- uh, voluntary redundancy. And it makes you wonder 11 years on how many of those people are still there, still hoping for VR, because essentially they're not going to be in a situation where they've got, uh, you know, the, the the savings made up. And definitely the share price hasn't really come back, has it? Yeah. So, I, I worry about lots of people who have this idea in their head they're going to be working well into their 70s and 80s. Mm. It's just, you know, People's bodies like give out over time, and there's just the majority of the population are just not prepared financially or, or in any way for um, you know for retirement. And I think that's a you know a problem that's going to. It's a social to problem us. that's waiting to happen, isn't yeah. it? And and people don't have the savings habits that some sort of older generations did. The share save schemes aren't as generous as they used to be. The pension schemes now we do have the workplace pension, which is good, but that probably there just isn't that savings culture that's as normal. You now have a generation of people that sort of. Uh, 25 to 35-year-old, a lot of people came out of university around 2008, 9, 10, and were just like, oh, this is the job market now. I'm going to have to work longer. I've got no chance of saving. And oh, by the way, I've got this 
massive student loan that I might never pay off. Like, thanks, mom and dad. Thanks, God. Nick, like, yeah. <laughs> so like they they did just find themselves in this position where like for the first time in a while we had a generation that was going to be substantially worse off than their parents, mm. and now we're seeing products like mortgages that leverage the equity of your mm. mom and dad's mortgage. Mm-hmm. Like we're in weird times. I think that's always relative, though, isn't it? It's like I mean, my dad. My dad's first job was a miner. Do you know what I mean? So it's like it's relative what your what the quality of life is, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? But at least for three generations, look, go back three. They're in a war. People were dying. Like things were blowing up all over the place. This is feeling Monty Python again. Like we're really (laughs) in my day, you know. And then we got to the the children that grew up after that, and their mum and dad were instilling into them. Look, you got food. We had rations. You know, and and then we had some prosperity, and then the longest run bull market, and house prices skyrocketing. And suddenly everyone's much richer than they were and trading up. Yeah. And now, what, three or so generations later, we've we've come off a, the top of that. Mm-hmm. And actually, people's children are not going to be as well off. And actually, a lot of the wealth that was generated is going to sit with their mum and dad until they're... 80 something you're not going to you're not going to inherit it until you're in your mid 50s if they've not had to spend it on health care and you know and care and everything else any minute now the Hovis bike is going to come through the store (laughs) 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 you had it easy (laughs) and full of gravel middle of the road alright let's move on I mean one guy who was definitely not planning his retirement anytime soon on the next story that we had from Reuters was Bernard Madoff was arrested over alleged 50 billion fraud. So Bernard Madoff, a quiet force on Wall Street for decades, was arrested and charged on Thursday for allegedly running a 50 billion Ponzi scheme, another thing that people only really know about now, possibly through cryptocurrency, actually, mm-hmm. speaking of which, in what might go down as one of the biggest fraud cases ever. So Madoff told senior employees at his firm on Wednesday that it was all just one big lie, uh, <laughs> and it was basically a giant Ponzi scheme. Uh, a Ponzi scheme is a swindle offering unusually high returns with early investors paid off with money from later investors. So essentially, you just get into a scheme of paying off the early ones and moving the money around. It's almost like liquidity, actually, thinking about it, if you say it quickly. So US prosecutor charged Madoff 70 with a single count of securities fraud. They said he faces up to 20 years in prison and a fine of up to $5 million. The I mean, fine's pretty good. Yeah, for the... fifty billion scheme for yeah. five million, that seems fair, doesn't it? Oh well, he would ha- be happy with that, doesn't he? I mean, what do you think with this one? Who's watched the film? I haven't. No. Yeah. Oh, you should watch the film. It's, is he is he still in prison? Yes, he's still in prison. Is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all about branding, all right? Because you know, who would invest in a company that's called Madoff? <laughs> As in made off with your money. Made off with your money, yeah. <laughs> there, there was a story in July where he asked Trump for help with his uh, with his prison sentence as well. So he's still trying to get out of prison. He's still locked up um, for this more than 10 years on. And he was 70 when he got locked up. So mm-hmm. you've got to think he's, uh, he's probably not going to get out anytime soon, even if he's trying to trying to pull in favors with, mm-hmm. with, uh, with the president. So, so I've not seen the film, but was it just something that slowly escalated? You know, he made... It, did he, he start off with this yeah. big... Thing. Or was it just like, uh, <laughs> like, oh, you know, one square? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, it's fifty billion. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. No, I think I think because, during the film it became quite clear that he knew what was going on, and Must. people around him probably didn't, particularly okay. his family. But again, films are films are film, um, yeah. as you know. Um, but uh, it's very very interesting, and mm. um, a bit like you know, sort of similar gene as the Big Short. If you watch that one, mm-hmm. but yeah. it is sort of. 
you know, part of it is a villain here, isn't it? That's why they've got so much narrative. I mean, yes. you know, arguably the scandal of trashing the entire financial service industry, you know, was much bigger. And yet people struggle to relate to that in the same mm. way. As you've got made off, you've got someone you can point to, yeah. 50 billion, it's a fraud. Maybe well, we just need to make up some yeah, yeah. mythical character yeah, um, that we time. can point to, like a boogeyman. But yeah. actually, <laughs> let's brand Banky the financial Let's brand face. the next financial look, tornadoes have names. Yes. Like, we just need to, we need to name it. Financial crisis. Is that where they do that? No, I don't know. David. I get enough hate mail. I don't know. Yeah. 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 There, there is something. Sort of click, click, the bu- click the vote button below these stories. Rogue Trader was the film from 1999. And in that, what you see is they portray it as if Nick Leeson had sort of found himself in a bit of trouble where he couldn't pay all the clients back. So he started playing with other money from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And at first, it was just going to be, oh, this will just till I get back right. You know, yeah, nobody yeah. will know. Compliance just weren't watching because they didn't know the details like the traders knew. Yeah. And so you can see how these things can start small and snowball. Mm. Um, but it, to your point, Caroline, when you've got like the villain, it's so much easier. And I think mm. this is why people have struggled with the financial crisis yeah. so much was because the villain was that shot of Canary Wharf that they always use on the news yeah. where it's like a flyover of those bank brands. And it's like, so those people in there are the villain. And actually, for the most part, it's probably not the people in there. They're, yeah. they're, they're just trying to do their job. It's just that and austerity. That's the only branding that kind of came out with it. There wasn't sort of a... You know, an individual. Yeah, and I wonder how much, like you say, austerity was put down as the thing because you heard mm. Gordon Brown and uh, Alice Darling and all these people kind of just saying it over and over yeah. again, like it was some sort of remote thing that was happening. Or caught, it was, it was very weird, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, back in two thousand and eight, I think a lot of things were weird, weren't they? But you know, like this seems to be one of well, the things that's completely normal now. I remember talking now. to the, <laughs> talking to the Australian regulator. And uh, he was saying, you know, we've worked out how to deal with this because every day there was a bank declaring some disaster or catastrophe. And he said they go through phases and it's called Sarah. And the first phase is shock because it's happened to them. Then it's anger followed closely by rage, then acceptance. And then finally they get to the help. And he said when we as regulators just watch them go through that cycle. He said the funniest bit's the anger and the rage bit. That's really when they get going. <laughs> and my wife's well, going to Sarah, I'll bring <laughs> Okay, you're at... Oh, <laughs> oh, now you're back at rage again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't help pointing out what point. All right, next up we have a story over on the Telegraph. It is sale of PPI with loans to be banned. So PPI, Payment Protection Insurance, uh, in case you've been living under a rock for the last 11 years, I guess. Policies offered cover to people with debts in the event of an accident, unemployment, or sickness. PPI has long come under fire for being missold by pushy shop assistants, bank advisors, and has been the subject of investigations by the Office of Fair Trading and the FSA. The commission is proposing a ban of the sale of PPI by a distributor to customers within 14 days of selling credit to that customer. So you could still sell it theoretically, but only after a cooling off period I mean this one escalated a little bit didn't it yeah what was the um, total amount that the UK banks have now spent was it over 50 billion in compensation and everybody has had that nuisance phone call saying were you missold payments protection insurance between the years of 1990 whatever it was and 2008 well I think I think at the beginning of this nobody really quite could have predicted Mm. that the FCA would have had to have used Arnold Schwarzenegger's head to promote (laughs) a campaign (laughs) to try and close it out. (laughs) But yeah, it it has been the gift that just keeps on giving, really, isn't it? It would have been better just to give £2,000 to every Every, man, woman and child and uh, have done with it. Uh, Kind of the quid pro quo bailing out the bank. Mm. But this sort of was 
that in my yeah. mind in oh, a weird a way this was like hassle. this was the thing that would like just keep hitting the banks with it over yeah. and over again because you know, there needed to be some bloodletting and this was the only visible bloodletting that society really got to the point mm. of you don't really get that with you know like that shot of flying over Canary Wharf how do I bloodlet from them like how do I get my revenge because they've screwed up my economy and now I have no job and ah well, ah, actually, we use missile PPI. You go talk to these people. Oh, there's there's seven grand. So, so like, so PPI is efforts. like a fifty billion passive aggressive kind of. Yeah, it's like a quantitative easing for the rest of the country. I'd never mm. thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah. like I, I, I don't think it was ever portrayed that way. But it's sort of, yeah. if you think about it in like in a more obtuse way, mm. it kind of comes across that way. Yeah, but how many people didn't claim? Because if they paid out fifty billion, yeah. right, which is a yeah. you know, reasonable chunk of change, and that was a third of what was due. Well, and there were all kinds of problems as well. So yeah, some people did, tried to claim that? directly with their banks and their banks sort of said, oh, no, you never had it. And it was like then they go to a third-party claimant agency or they'd have the uh, financial ombudsman look at it and it's like, no, they did. So mm. there was there was still like this is why some of this ran and ran. It yeah. wasn't just mm. a cut and dry, yes, you clearly were sold this insurance that you never needed and you were missold it. It was uh, you were missold it and then somebody said, oh, no, you didn't really have it. So there, it just snowballed. What I did before... You were in PPI. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, no, I wasn't really. <laughs> was actually looking at this. I think it was something like 60 or percent of the claims that came through were because very shortly after the banning of it, the FCA, as it was then, because after the, the change, basically said that the evidence had to be produced in a certain amount of days. And actually, it was about 60% of the claims that were being made into ah. the banks were then just paid out because the banks couldn't actually evidence mm. what had happened and what had been sold. So I, I'm not sure, you know, the 50 billion, there must be at least 20% of them in there, 20 30% of them that were just paid out because they couldn't evidence in the, the speed that they needed to. Mm. It almost pointed out just how terrible at evidencing anything systems, banks yeah. were at all. Yeah. Where was that spreadsheet? And a, and a major part yeah, of, yeah. from a regulator perspective is showing what did you show to somebody mm. in order to them to buy a thing, which increasingly in a digital world should be easy, but is clearly not. But it just it just goes to show that actually in this case, the kind of tax, you know, it was just outweighed by the administrative burden. It would yes. have been far better just to literally hand out the money. Yeah, mm. um, but, And also an industry that could pay out 50 billion, mm. no banks have gone bankrupt. No. Now it's gone quiet. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. but, but seriously, like an, yeah. industry, an industry that could cough up 50 billion mm. is okay still. Probably could have bailed itself out. <laughs> well, and, and in that decade has massively recapitalized itself. Yes, return on equity is nowhere near what it was before the financial crisis, but for the ring fence mm-hmm. bank um, portions of most of the big banks, return on equity is in a really good place, which is yep. the key measure a, a lot of the banks are measured by on by their shareholders. Yep. So actually, they've sort of come out of it, they're making significant profits on the good bit of their organization. The bits that seem to be struggling because of the weight of new regulations are those more casino-like uh, sort of investment bank pieces. But then you look at the US where they weren't as kind of, I guess, heavy on the regulation for some of the investment banks. You've got a, a two-speed market where the European banks, that we're running out of European investment banks. We don't have them in the same way anymore. And the European market is in a very different place to the US market potentially as a result. So you know, has this all been good? I just don't think we know yet, do we? No. I mean, on the basis that it feels, uh, to everything that we talked about, it feels like we're sort of approaching the crest of another sort of mm. uh, roller coaster ride down, yep. then um, you can only hope that we've learned some lessons, I guess. But yeah. I like the fact that 
you know, a fair amount of the population are worried at the moment about the economy. That's one of the things that actually prevents these massive bubbles and then drops. Mm. Everyone's being a little more careful. Are they really going to take out that loan? Are they really going to move house just now? Actually, you know, that it does lead to, I, I think, well, Jason the Economist here, you know, it leads to a, a, at least a shallower recession than some mm. massive boom and... Uh, boom Still a bit of scar tissue there from and long memories maybe. Or is that just we're now in the financial bubble and we weren't 11 years ago? Like, is that... But what does this show in 11 years' time say about this period? You know, when you, was it, it going to be that sort of shallow recession, nicely, yeah. you know, stabilised by Jason the Economist? Or, you know, are we in for another really hard ride? <laughs> we need we to call it a recession now. <laughs> we call it austerity, don't we? Is that, it's a new word for the same thing. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. It will, it will have to be re- – it's like austerity too. <laughs> this time it's even worse. Yeah. Yeah, so you're getting into the branding thing now. Yeah. I like it. See, that's a rubbish moved from, film, uh, moved from names of tornadoes. To actually turning them into film titles yeah. in a world where yeah. <laughs> Schwarzenegger's the good guy. Yeah. Well, it's very rare the sequel's better than the first one, isn't it? So it's what about like Paddington? Terminator Two. Okay, no, Paddington. Okay. This is the point where everyone starts listing like <laughs> <laughs> films where the sequel was obviously better. Um, I, I think. It, I mean, it is going to be interesting. I, I, I hope. I hope, Sorry. like you say, the the prudence in the market means people are being. Uh, maybe more self-aware in that space. I mean, if anybody talks to any taxi driver ever, like things have never returned in the way that people were going out or people... Because well, yeah, they're all Uber like, drivers. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that just kind of stepped on yeah. your point. Yeah. 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 Which wasn't around in 2008. Didn't it? <laughs> and finally, <laughs> our last story is over on BBC News. This is Man... Man's pants password is changed. So this is not <laughs> Wait, the... Wait, hang on. I know. This Where's is the not, comma in that? No, 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 just say that again. You've got to. Come on. <laughs> no, it's, it's man's pants password is changed. There are no commas. So a man who chose Lloyd's is pants as his phone banking password said it, <laughs> it had been changed by a member of staff to no, it's not. So Steve <laughs> Jetty from Shrewsbury said he chose the password after falling out with Lloyd's TSB as it was at the time, over insurance claims that came free with his account. So he said that he was then banned from changing it back to another password, which he wanted to go to Barclays is better. Uh, and here's what Mr. Jetty had to say. I thought it was actually quite funny. I was told I couldn't change it back to Lloyd's pants because they said it was not appropriate. Apparently that's not appropriate when you ring them up on the call centre when they ask for your password, which I find it quite funny. I asked if it was the Could have been pants. a lot worse, to be honest, couldn't it? Well, he did go on to say, I asked if it was the pants that they didn't like and would Lloyd's is rubbish, but they didn't like that either. So I tried Barclays is better and that didn't go well either. The rule seems to have changed and they told me to it had to be one word so I tried censorship but they didn't have that either well it's good to see that um, it, through all this like the British public had a, like a smile on their faces didn't they so when I read the headline uh, man's pants password has changed I thought man that'd make going to the bathroom confusing <laughs> well it, it's like medieval sort of uh, <laughs> type of vibe going on this was the start of two factor authentication oh, okay <laughs> Maybe, you never know. Two-factor defecation. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Is that where we're going to leave this? Yeah. <laughs> well, we went downhill pretty quickly. Didn't we? So and cute. that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you, Nick? On LinkedIn or just go to rtgs.com. Very good. Caroline. I'm at C Plum on Twitter or at Fluidly. 
Very good. Jason. Uh, at Jason Bates. Uh, S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. And as for me, you can find me on at David Brewer over on Twitter. What do you think of today's shows? Oh, God, the emails are going to be hilarious. Uh, let us know on at Fintech Insiders or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to watch and share 11 Years Documentary. You can find it over on 11years.film and share it using hashtag 11 years. We made the film to celebrate the amazing fintech community in the UK and abroad, and it would mean so much to us and our community if you can get behind it. Thanks very much. Head over to 11years.film. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.